Walters is your pregame spot for July 4th as Walters will open its doors at a special time of 9 on Monday morning. Visit walters.com backslash events for more information. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The pitch to Bell, hit in the air to deep left field, way back, long gone, way out of here, a home run for Josh Bell. Josh Bell has given the Nationals the lead here in the bottom of the eighth inning with two out, it's Washington three and Miami two. Two balls, two strikes, two out, a runner at first, three-two dance, Brady sets, the kick of the pitch, swung on, hit high in the air to right field, Thomas moving back, looking up, it's going, going, and gone! A home run for Jesus Sanchez, a two-run homer to give Miami the lead here in the top of the ninth inning. Here's the pitch, swing and a line drive, left center field, it's a base hit for Robles! The tying run is scored. Adrianza stops at second. The 2-1 pitch. Anderson swings and hits it up the middle. Off the glove on the hop of second baseman Cesar Hernandez into short center field. Garcia runs it down there. De La Cruz comes in to score. And the Marlins lead it 5-4. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, July 4th, 2022. Happy July 4th, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Perhaps you are listening to this installment of the Nats Chat podcast while getting your July 4th going, while preparing for the Nats annual 11.05 a.m. game on July 4th. Whatever happens in Monday's Game 4 against the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park will be hard to top what happened in Sunday afternoon's Game 3 against the Marlins. A 7-4, 10-inning loss to the Marlins, dropping the Nats to 1-11. and Yes, 1-11 and against the Marlins this season and dropping the Nats to 3-15 and in extra inning games since the start of last season. Yes, 3-15. and And we, in this game on Sunday, had the following things happen. You ready for this? Juan Soto leaving the game due to injury. Eric Fetty pitching quite well. The Nats getting no hit for six innings. The Nats overcoming a 2-0 seventh inning deficit with three runs over the seventh and eighth innings. Tanner Rainey blowing a save in the top of the ninth by giving up a two-run homer. The Nats tying the game in the bottom of the ninth on a clutch two-out first pitch RBI single by Victor Robles, of all people. And then Coral Edwards Jr. allowing four consecutive singles to begin what ended up being a three-run Marlins 10th. Uh, This was some game on Sunday, Mark, and uh, 
I don't know if it was a good game, as we have said about previous Nats games this season, but this was a game, and this was a crazy game. So, Al, you just went through all that, and it's exhausting to to say it and to think about it after the fact. Now, put yourself in my shoes, sitting in the press box, trying to write a game story as this is all happening, and having to change the story over and over and over. As a writer, look, I get it. It's an exciting, thrilling game. And obviously, if they come back to win, it, you deal with that and you, you feel good for them. But as a writer, that's like the nightmare scenario, a game that keeps going back and forth like that late with such dramatic swings when they are literally one strike away from the game being over. And like you said, for a lot of the afternoon, I'm thinking I'm either writing about a no-hitter or a no-hitter being broken up late in the game. And that ends up like an afterthought to all this. It is remarkable how much happened in the final, what, four innings of this game, starting in the seventh inning on. It's crazy. It's a shame, I guess, in some ways that these two teams aren't better and that these games don't really mean something down the stretch in a pennant race, because that would truly be thrilling. Instead, it just leaves you feeling deflated, especially, especially when they were this close to pulling it off. What would have like legitimately been an inspiring win against a team that they have not been able to do anything against this year. And then you have the rug pulled out from under you one strike away in the ninth. And then you get your hopes up again and then have the rug pulled out from you again in the 10th. And it just seems fitting both for the 2022 Nationals, but especially for the 2022 Nationals against the Marlins. It doesn't matter what they do. They can't beat this team. No, they can't. It really is something. And to get a game like this to end up being a win would have been a nice thing. Holiday weekend, Sunday afternoon, the Nats by 2022 standards had a halfway decent crowd, at least in terms of officially announced attendance, 25,000 plus. But the Nats end up losing once again to the Marlins this season. We have reached the numerical midpoint of the Nats 2022 regular season. They are 29 and 52, 81 games down, 81 games to go, 29 and 52. That puts the Nats on pace to go 58 and 104 this season. Uh, the worst season for the Nats since the franchise came to DC was going 59 and 103 in 2009. And with the August 2nd MLB trade deadline now less than a month away, uh, you figure that record in the post trade deadline portion of the season probably won't be better than the pre trade deadline portion of the season's record. And so uh, we may well be looking at the single worst season for the Nats since a team came here, uh, at least in terms of record. We shall see. There is so much to unpack from this game. I guess let's start with what happened with Tanner Rainey. And, you know, in this series, the Nats bullpen had been really good. And I thought one of the talking points you and I would have for this installment of the podcast would be the great job that the bullpen has done in this series. And in this game on Sunday afternoon, you got a perfect top of the seventh from Mason Thompson. You got a perfect top of the eighth from Kyle Finnegan to preserve a 2 all tie, including striking out the Marlins' number one batter, John Birdie, on eight pitches. You felt good, at least I did, about the state of the Nats pen going into the top of the ninth. And then Tanner Rainey came into the game. And he got two outs. And he had Avisayo Garcia down 1-2. But Rainey ended up issuing a two-out, six-pitch walk. And then Rainey had the next batter, Jesus Sanchez, down 0-2. You said, all right, Rainey issued his usual walk, but that's okay. You can still get out of this inning unscathed. But Rainey did not get out of the inning unscathed. Gave up a two-out, two-run homer to Jesus Sanchez to the second deck in right field for a 4-3 Marlins lead. Fourth blown save of the season for Tanner Rainey. We've been talking about this. He has not looked great lately. For a while, he looked good in this game on Sunday afternoon, but obviously the outing ended up being a disaster for him. As soon as he issues the walk, that's when I start 
worrying because we've seen this. It always starts with a walk. Now, I thought the bigger problem was going to be after the walk, they bring in for the first time we've seen in this series, Billy Hamilton, the pinch run. They just called him up from AAA. I, I had even forgotten that he was in the Marlins organization at the moment. But he's in there for one reason. You're thinking to steal second base. Rainey, not great at holding runners on. Uh, I know Caber Ruiz has had a great job behind the plate throwing guys out, but this is a tough challenge. I'm expecting Hamilton to steal second and now potentially score the tying run on a base hit. Instead, he never leaves first base. And we get to Sanchez, and that at bat, you're watching it play out. He's pumping fastball after fastball. He gets ahead in the count, throws a couple away. Sanchez doesn't bite on him. And I'm personally thinking to myself, is he going to try to sneak a slider in here? And I'm thinking, no, they've talked to him about stick with your best pitch. Don't get beat on your lesser pitch. Stick with the fastball. That's what he does, but he ends up putting it where he's not supposed to. It's supposed to be up in the zone potentially away. He ends up down and in. And oh my God, that was one of those right off the bat. You knew it. All the air in the building was sucked out. It was dead silent as that ball soars into the upper deck. And you're like, oh my God, this just happened again. And just that feeling because it's the Marlins. Can't even believe this is what we're, what it's come to. You know, it's not, this isn't the Mets. It's not the Braves. It's the Marlins, but you sort of come to expect this to happen now when they face these guys. It's crazy what has happened when these two teams play each other this year. The walks have really become a problem for Tanner Rainey. He's now averaging 4.15 walks per nine innings. That is way too high of a walk rate for your supposed ace reliever, your supposed closer. And, you know, it's no longer like one or two recent bad outings for Tanner Rainey. This is kind of a sustained stretch at this point in which. He has not been locked down and in which you don't feel great about him now outing in and outing out. And it's not that every outing he's giving up runs or, you know, getting ravaged. OK, he's had some good outings lately. But, you know, basically since early June, there have been way too many hiccups here. And it just it doesn't feel great right now with him. And I haven't looked it up, but I don't he hasn't had many, if any, one, two, three innings over the last few weeks. Like it feels like even when he gets a job done, he issues a walk or he gives up a hit and it's just not clean. And, you know, your guy, Kyle Finnegan, look, he has his own hiccups, but he has looked better than Rainey lately. And to the extent that it matters, I wonder if we're going to see a change here where Finnegan becomes that designated ninth inning guy. Now, I know Davey will say, hey, I'm using Finnegan in higher leverage spots than Rainey a lot of the times. But at least right now with Finnegan, there is some semblance of faith. I don't know how much faith you can have in Rainey right now. He just does not seem to be in a great place. So you mentioned it. Uh, I had looked this up recently, and I just looked it up again to confirm. This is his 12th consecutive appearance that he did not go 1-2-3. He has not had a 1-2-3 inning since May 26th against the Rockies when he went uh, a scoreless eighth, actually, at that point. One, two, three with a strikeout. Everything since then has involved at least one runner reaching base. And his last four outings now have all included a walk. Now, he had gotten the save in each of those, so he was able to pitch around him. But as we've seen this year, the walks do happen way too frequently, and they very often portend danger. So, yeah, look, Davey uh, spoke him up. He said, he's still our guy. I'm going to put him right back out there. I would say that it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to give him a little breather here, let him try to do this in a different situation. But neither of these guys is established. They're still learning how to do this in the late innings. They clearly have the stuff to be a big-time late-inning reliever, 
But as we've seen over the years, it's not always just about the stuff. It's about having the right mental approach and the ability to get through the the hardest outs you have to record in a game. Some guys can do it. Some guys can't. And I don't care what anyone says. There is a difference when you're pitching the ninth inning and you know that you're the last man standing out there. I've seen some really good relievers over the years not be able to succeed in that inning and be able to succeed in other ones. I don't know if that's who Tanner Rainey is or not. I think the situation the Nationals are in, there's no harm in finding out if he can do it or not. Maybe he learns from these. But you don't feel a whole lot of sense of confidence, unfortunately, when he takes the mound in those situations. Even, like we said, two outs, nobody on. As soon as the walk happens, you're already worried about how it's going to end up. Yeah. And the other thing, too, with all relievers is... They're basically like second-class pitching citizens. They're pitchers who aren't good enough to be starters, and thus they are relievers. And so they are flawed to begin with. Like, if you're a reliever, you're inherently flawed as a pitcher. Either you don't have more than one go-to pitch, or you can't last long in games, or you have major control problems, or whatever the case may be. And so you're already dealing with someone who has something wrong with them. There's something wrong with them somewhere. Otherwise, you'd be a starter. And right now, we're seeing things go wrong for Tanner Rainey. And, you know, don't look now, but maybe now we're seeing things go wrong for Carl Edwards Jr. He comes in the game in the top of the 10th. He ends up allowing three runs to earn, begins the inning by allowing four consecutive singles. Now you give up four singles, you know, some of that is a variance of the batted ball, but it's hard to ignore that this is a second consecutive bad outing for Carl Edwards Jr., who had been so good for the Nats this season. This was Edwards' first game since that 8-7 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park. This past Wednesday afternoon, Edwards in that game officially allowed three runs in one inning. Top of the six, allowed a run on a leadoff homer by Brian Reynolds, uh, then gave up a two-out single in that inning, and then in the top of the seventh, gave up a leadoff single, then issued a wild pitch, then issued a walk. So Edwards has come back down to earth over his last two outings now. Yeah, in this case, he was falling behind in the count and putting himself in bad spots, uh, and the Marlins fought back and, uh, you know, four straight hits off him, and they were pretty solid hits. Uh, these were not, you know, little loopers. These were not any luck, lucky hits, anything like that. You know, maybe eventually a guy like that gets exposed. Uh, you, you hope that he can get back to where he was because he was fantastic for a long stretch there. It does seem, you know, he hasn't had many of them, but the games where he does give up runs, they, they come in bunches. You know, I think this is like the third time he's given up three runs in an outing. Uh, and aside from that, there's maybe only one or two times he's given up one run everything else zero. So that's a little concerning that he either has it or he doesn't. Most of the time he's had it, but when he doesn't, he really doesn't have it. And, you know, someone was asking me, why did Davey leave him out there as the inning's starting to fall apart from him? I'm like, well, you've already used Thompson, Finnegan, Rainey. You're in the 10th inning. You don't know how this is all going to go. you got another game to play tomorrow and then no off days. You have to leave him out there and hope he gets out of it. And he eventually did. But That was tough to watch. And again, it sucks all the air out of the building from what could have been a really inspiring moment overcoming this. Hey, the boys legitimately battled today and it still wasn't enough. And that in a lot of ways makes it even more deflating. Yeah. And uh, Carl is doing some damage to his trade value right now. All right. Oh, Carl needs to rehab his trade value because August 2nd is uh, coming up sooner than we think. But like Mark said, the boys did battle in this game. We have seen that so rarely this season. We saw it on Sunday, and that's part of what makes this loss particularly painful. A game in which the boys battled still ended up being a game that the Nats lost. 
Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. It feels like everything is going up these days, including home prices. And so there's no better time to have the look of your home go up and the value of your home go up with new windows from Window Nation. Get two free windows with every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing for two full years. Take advantage of this offer. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. It's getting hot outside. Weather impacts your windows. Hot days can cause a caulk to crack, seal failures, and condensation. Window Nation only uses top-of-the-line materials, including mold spray and quad max sealant. Window Nation is the best. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and make sure that you ask for the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi. Two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing for two full years. 866-90NATION or windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. The 2-2 to Bell. Bell hits it hard, left side, and that's going to be in there for a base hit. It's going to go to the wall. Bell around first. He'll head into second base with a leadoff double to break up the Pablo Lopez no-hit bid here in the seventh inning. 
So, like I said earlier, the Nats overcame a 2-0 seventh inning deficit by scoring three runs over the seventh and eighth innings. It all started with Josh Bell. Uh, Josh Bell and what ended up being a two-run Nats seventh leadoff opposite field double to left field despite having been down in the count at 1.12. The hit broke up a no-hit bid by Marlin starter Pablo Lopez. Yeah, the Nats were getting no hit for a good chunk of this game. Then Nelson Cruz came through, and Nelson Cruz has not been good lately. He is not having a good series overall. He, in this game on Sunday afternoon, only went one for five, struck out twice, left four men on base, but the one was a big one. Cruz in that two-run seventh, an RBI single to center field to cut the Nats' deficit to 2-1. Uh, You then got a double from Luis Garcia. You got a one-out hit by pitch drawn by Yadiel Hernandez. And then you got a one-out first pitch RBI sack fly off the bat of A-Ray Adrianza. And then in the bottom of the eighth inning, Josh Bell strikes again. Josh Bell is having some season here. If he's not an all-star, that is a crime. He smashes a two-out tie-breaking solo homer and off Marlins reliever Stephen Okert on a bomb to left field to put the Nats up 3-2 and to give the Nats their first lead in the series. Stephen Okert had dominated the Nats this season. Stephen Okert came into the game with an ERA plus of 200 this season. 100 is average. 200 is spectacular. And Josh Bell got to Okert. These were some great moments here for the Nats over the 7th and 8th innings. It was phenomenal. Really good at bats. I, I can't get over how good Josh Bell has been. And not just the total production, but the meaning of all these, when he's doing it in significant situations, at times when we've seen so many others fall victim to the pressure of the moment, he's been better often in these spots. Uh, I mean, you cook the bat in the seventh inning and you're being no hit. You know that. They can see the scoreboard. They know what the what's going on. And that was a great at bat to now poke the ball the other way down the line for the double. And then obviously the home run, like you said, off a guy who had dominated them. Now, Okert was pitching for the third straight day, which I thought was a little bit curious on Don Mattingly's part to bring him in to do that again. You thought maybe there might be a little bit of hint of uh, either fatigue or these guys figuring him out. It worked for uh, Josh Bell to do that. That was another no-doubter. Off the bat, you're like, wow, he just obliterated that ball. And you could see he showed some emotion after that one. And you're thinking, okay, they did it. They just pulled this comeback off, something they have not done all year. I think the other day I mentioned their numbers in the seventh inning and beyond were terrible this year. Offensively, 600 OPS worst in baseball from the seventh inning on. They only, I think they were three and 41 this year when trailing after six innings. So here you go. You finally do this. You put it all together and then you blow it. And then you come back and you tie it again with another rally in the ninth off their closer, Tanner Scott, who also was pitching for the third straight day. So the Marlins were fortunate to get through this. They were kind of on fumes there at the end of this. And that's why I thought that might play to the Nats' advantage. Unfortunately, as great as the rallies were, they couldn't get that one extra run that would have just ended it right there and not forced the extra innings. Yeah, I have to say this regarding Josh Bell. You know, we had the Mike Rizzo conversation on the last installment of the podcast. It doesn't necessarily feel like it because of the way the last two seasons have gone But that trade, Christmas Eve 2020, the Nats getting Josh Bell from Pittsburgh for Will Crow and Eddie Yeen, uh, that's another one of these great Mike Rizzo trades. I mean, this has worked out very well for the Nats, the production that they've gotten from Bell. It hasn't met much in terms of wins and losses, yes, but if you're just evaluating that trade, I mean, that is another successful trade for Mike Rizzo. You've gotten two now really nice seasons from Josh Bell. 
Yeah, it was, what, six weeks at the start of last season that were not good at all. Ever since then, it's been outstanding. He has been as good as advertised, everything they could want. He had a great defensive play in this game early on, diving to catch a uh, hard shot down the first baseline, and then from the seat of his pants, an awkward throw, but he got it there to Eric Fetty. He's been so good. He's been so good in the clubhouse. It does make you wonder, and maybe it's too late in the process. It's, It's unlikely to happen at this point. But it does make you wonder as you're really thinking about how are they building this team for the future. And given the lack of other big-time offensive producers outside of Juan Soto that they have beyond this year, are they seriously considering trying to keep him in some way? Or are they going to seriously consider trying to re-sign him next winter if they do end up trading him now? I, I don't know how it will all work out. And there are pros and cons to it. But you can't tell me that he hasn't meant a lot to this team and that there's not a at least a lot of reason to wonder if it might be the right move to actually keep him. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't figure to cost a ton because guys who fit his profile these days aren't commanding $200, $300 million contracts. The risk, obviously, would be you don't have an extension in place and then you don't trade him and then he leaves you after the season. The ideal scenario might be to do what has happened in the past. The Yankees did it with Aroldis Chapman. The Orioles did it with Mike Bordick years ago. Trade him get something back for him, and then re-sign him in the following offseason. Not easy to do, but maybe that is something uh, that you can pull off. It's just hard, though, to me to justify not trading him if you don't have an extension in place. You're taking a very big chance by doing that. Yeah, no, I agree. I said all along, they are going to have to know that they have him locked up before the trade deadline, if not. Now, that said, you have to see what the offers are. If there's no good offers at all, then maybe you say, okay, we'll take the chance, we'll play this out and see what happens. But what I was going to say about the possibility of the trading him and then trying to re-sign him. The one fear you have there is here's a guy who has never played on a contending team in his time in Pittsburgh. And then here, he was so excited last year when he arrived, thinking he was finally going to get a chance to play on a team that was in the race. And we saw last year that that didn't happen. Now, obviously, it's not happening here. The fear I would have would be if he's traded to a contender and gets a taste of a pennant race and maybe even the postseason. Is that too alluring for him? And he says, well, that's who I'm going to sign with. I want to go somewhere where they're going to have a chance to win right away, as opposed to hoping the Nationals become that team again down the road. Now, maybe that's not the ultimate decision for him. He does like it here a lot. They obviously like him. But that would be my fear of uh, either trading him or waiting it out and hoping to re-sign him after the season. Yeah. And, you know, if that happens, then so be it. Uh, I just, to me, the position that the Nats are in, they have a guy right now with an OPS well over 900 in a contract season. You can't not trade him if you don't have an extension in place. Like, you just cannot take that risk. So, and I don't think that the Nats will. My feeling is that they probably will end up trading him, but uh, we shall see. So, Nats rally over the seventh and eighth innings. Tanner Rainey does as he does in the top of the ninth. And then the Nats rally again with a run in the bottom of the ninth inning. We got a one-out hit-by-pitch drawn by K-Bert Ruiz. The Nats got hit by four pitches in this game. That was another thing about this game. We then got a pretty impressive pinch walk drawn by Michael Franco, a one-out six-pitch walk that was drawn by Franco despite him having been down to the count 0-2. And then came, I mean, you talk about wacko, Victor Robles, two-out, first pitch, game-tying RBI single, to not the game at four in the bottom of the ninth. How many people watching this game with Robles batting and the Nats down to their final out said to themselves, all right, ball game over after what just happened with Tanner Rainey in the top of the ninth. And no, what's the vector? Victor comes through with the huge hit in the bottom of the ninth. That was great. 
Roger, Roger. That inning was nuts. And there was a legitimate question here, and it wound up not really, you know, being something to ask about afterwards because too much else had happened. But Davey Martinez pinch hits Michael Franco for Yadiel Hernandez, which then means that you're putting the game on the shoulders of A. Ray Adrianza and Victor Robles, your eight and nine hitters. They've already used Lane Thomas off the bench because he had to replace Soto. They've already pinch run for Cabert Ruiz with Alcides Escobar. And then Trace Barrera is going to have to replace him as the catcher. So they're out of bench players. And you're putting the whole game on the shoulders of the weakest hitters on your team, <laughs> to be honest. Adrianza almost hit into a game-ending double play. He managed to beat it out, keep it alive. And then props to Victor. He stayed in the moment there. He didn't try to do too much. He lined a single to left center. Good for him. He has not had enough of those kind of moments, but it's nice to see that he can do it. And it's unfortunate that it's kind of lost in the shuffle after all this, because that could have been a great moment. And Rainey himself said, if not for the walk that he issued in the ninth, even if he gives up the game tying Homer, maybe Robles wins it in the bottom of the ninth. And so it, it it's it's hard to see what could have been a great moment for Victor and for the team go to waste like that. Another thing that went to waste in the game was a good outing from Eric Fetty. This kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Eric Fetty on Sunday afternoon, two runs in six innings, six strikeouts. Uh, gave up just three hits, a homer, a double, and a single. He did issue three walks and a wild pitch, but ultimately two runs in six innings. He threw 106 pitches, 64 strikes versus 42 balls. Uh, he had a rough top of the third, although he only ended up giving up a run in that inning. He gave up a leadoff Double to Brian De La Cruz, issued a five-pitch walk of Jacob Stallings, issued a wild pitch, issued a seven-pitch walk of Luke Williams, who was down at 1.02, but only gave up a run. He gave up an RBI grounder to John Birdie for a force-out and a one nothing Marlins lead. And then the only other run that Fetty allowed in this game, top of the fifth, gave up a two-out solo homer to Luke Williams. Um, this was a good outing from Eric Fetty. He looked pretty good. Like I said, some trouble in the third, but that inning could have been much worse than it ended up being. And, you know, you end up wasting one of the better outings from Eric Fetty this season uh, with this loss on Sunday. The only downside was the pitch count at 106, but he got through the sixth. So it's not as bad. Often we've seen him approach the 100 pitch mark in the fifth inning. So, yeah, two runs in six innings. You know, this is, I think, the 10th time in 16 starts this year that he's allowed two or fewer earned runs. So, I mean, he he is giving them a chance. The only issue with him has just been not pitching deeper in games because the pitch count gets so high. Now, there were still several of those at-bats in this game where he starts off 0-2 and the next thing you know, it's 3-2 and they're fouling pitches off and extending the at-bats. Fortunately for him, he avoided the worst of the damage in this one, was able to, to get through it. He finished strong in the sixth inning. He felt very good about how this one went, obviously. And on a day when the opponent is tossing a no-hitter, you've got to be pretty close to that. And he gave him a chance to win. And uh, you can't fault Eric Fetty, I don't think, for anything in this one. You can always email the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. We got this email from Connor. How many players do you think the Nats trade away at the deadline? If you had to set an over-under, what would it be? I thought that this was a really good question. So the idea with an over-under is you want equal action on both sides. I think you look at the Nats. I think three and a half would make sense because you say right now there seem to be three pretty obvious guys who will be traded. Josh Bell, Nelson Cruz, Carl Edwards Jr. The question is, will there be more? Do you think Eric Fetty would have any trade value? He is under team control for a little while longer. He certainly is not great, but he has been okay this season. And when he's been good, he's been, you know, two runs in six innings kind of good. We've seen that multiple times now, outings in that neighborhood. 
Do you think the Nats will get calls about Fetty? Do you think Mike Rizzo would be more than willing to trade away Eric Fetty? I don't know. I It would have to be a, a specific team with a specific need. You don't often see teams, contending teams, saying, well, we just we really need a number five starter. Now, it happened with John Lester last year, of course. We've talked about every once in a while it does happen. If it's a team that already has a really good, you know, top three in their rotation, and they just need somebody else to take the ball on the fifth day and give them five quality innings, you know, maybe that. But I'm imagining it's a fairly limited market of teams that are in that boat. Chances are, if there's a contending team that needs starting pitching help, they need somebody who can pitch closer to the top of the rotation than at the back of it. It's possible. I would probably guess less likely in his case. As far as what number I would set for an over-under, it all comes down to the bullpen. It's Edwards, Finnegan, Rainey. Like, what do you do with those? You know, lesser extent, guys like Franco, Cesar Hernandez. You know, I think it's possible. I would probably set the over on that or go with the over on that. I think as we saw last year, if Mike Rizzo has anybody who's not locked up beyond this season and he gets anything resembling a decent offer for them, he's probably going to move them. That's the situation they're in right now. So I probably expect more. It may be some names that aren't real big and we aren't necessarily thinking about as blockbusters who are going to bring in a ton of big name prospects. Obviously, Bell and Cruz are the big ones, but I could see some more, a little bit lesser type moves being made for more role players, either who would come off the bench for other teams or for the relievers. Yeah. I mean, you can make an argument for as many as, I don't know, six or seven guys being dealt, but uh, you know, some things are going to have to break right for the number to end up being that high. Roaming Rooster, the best fried chicken sandwich in the DMV is expanding. You've already seen our location by Section 238 at Nationals Park, but now we have recently opened locations in Pike and Rose in Maryland, and in Virginia, we now have Burke and Chantilly. Our chicken is grain-fed, antibiotic-free, and only free-range. Roaming Rooster is serving homemade enhanced bun milkshakes and frozen custard scoops at select locations and currently working on rolling them out to all locations. Fetty will come to the set. Working from the first base side, Birdie runs, Wendell takes, the throw down by Ruiz is in time! Stalling still standing at third base. That's a heck of a throw. 12th of the year for Kbert Ruiz. And he bails his pitcher out there by erasing birdie from the base paths. So another thing from this game, again, a lot gets lost in a wild game like this. Kbert Ruiz threw out John Birdie on an attempted steal in this game. And that's actually very significant. John Birdie has been the best base stealer in the majors this season. He came into the game 25 for 27 on stolen bases this season, came into the game leading the majors with 25 stolen bases this season. Throwing him out on an attempted steal is no small feat. Caber Ruiz threw out John Birdie on an attempted steal of second base for the second out in the top of the third. There haven't been many positives for the Nats so far this season. I think this is a big one, this blossoming of Kbert Ruiz when it comes to controlling the running game. He is really becoming a real weapon for the Nats behind the plate in terms of throwing out runners on base paths. And he's doing it despite often not getting a lot of help from his pitchers. Now, props to Fetty. He kept Birdie close, was able to, uh, you know, get the ball to the plate quickly. But a lot of guys have not been able to do that. And so Kbert's often at a disadvantage. There have been several times this year where I thought, boy, that was a good throw. It was just too late. Uh, And that's not on the catcher at all. So he now has thrown out 12 guys trying to steal bases. 
Only JT Real Muto at 13 has more. And then you add the four pickoff throws, all the first base on the back pick plays. That's most in the majors. If I told you that Cabert Ruiz, forget about even offensively what he might do this year. If I gave you those numbers, said that's what he's going to do through the first half of the season, you'd be thrilled with that. And then if you said, and he's also contributing offensively, maybe not as much as you'd like, is a little, little up and down. But I think there's still reason to believe the offense is going to come and it's going to get better. He's going to become a better game caller with experience too. He's got this natural skill that very few catchers nowadays have. It's hard to stop the running game, especially the best in the game at the moment in birdie. I'm really impressed with him, and I, I just keep thinking to myself, we're just seeing the beginning of who Cabert Ruiz is going to be as a big league catcher. We have seen the Nats have some catchers who can hit over the years. When's the last time they had a true defensive stud at catcher? I really can't think of one. Pudge? And, then, and who knows what he, you know, at that point in his career what he was. No, that has not been something that they've been very good at. Now, Jan Gomes was good last year at throwing guys out, I feel like, once he's kind of took over the lead a little bit. Maybe it's two years ago. I'm losing track now. With Suzuki, he kind of took over as the number one guy for Suzuki. Suzuki was terrible at throwing out runners. He had no arm at that point. But no, they've not had anybody like Caber Ruiz, certainly not a young catcher. They've hardly had any young catchers in a long time, not since Wilson Ramos early in his career. And he was not known for his arm or his defensive work either. So it's, it's a treat to see. And like I said, he's only going to get better with experience. They've kind of thrown him to the fire here, and he has handled it extremely well. I expect more and more from him. And um, he's not getting there this year, but Cabert Ruiz has the makings of an all-star catcher here before it's all said and done. All right, one more thing from this game. Uh, maybe this ends up being a nothing, but maybe this ends up being a whole lot of something. So Juan Soto on Sunday afternoon uh, actually did not register an official at-bat. He drew two walks. He left the game after four innings with what Davey Martinez called left calf tightness during Davey's post-game press conference. Any sense? Is this a major worry? Is this not that much of a worry? What do you think? He went to get an MRI afterwards and was already gone by the time we got down to the clubhouse. So anytime you hear that, you do get a little bit concerned. What could it be? Now, it wasn't like it. there was one specific moment where it grabbed him and you could see like, okay, that that did it to him. They were showing on Masson a few different moments. You had the double by De La Cruz in the third and Soto went back for the ball, picked up and made a pretty strong throw to second base. And then after that, you could see he was kind of stretching it out, flexing his knee, his leg. We thought it might have been his knee, not his calf. So you had that. And then an inning later, he's on the bases and he ends up in a little bit of a rundown between third and the plate. And he looked okay actually running. But then when it was over, you could see he was kind of limping a bit back to the dugout. And then he didn't take the field for the fifth. So there is some concern there. Now, I don't think this is something that even if it is an actual strain, that's going to knock him out for months, you would hope. Nothing like that. But it could be something that sidelines him a little bit. They've got such a quick turnaround to the uh, 11 a.m. game on July 4th. My guess would be he's not going to be in the lineup for that one. You know, maybe not the worst thing in the world, even if it's not serious. Give him a couple days to, like, relax. He hasn't had a lot of that this year, but we'll see. But, yeah, there was at least some concern in the clubhouse afterwards about it just because it's Juan Soto and he's going to get an MRI. Yeah, and as Mark mentioned, we did have another instance of a Nationals player getting thrown out on the base pass in this game. Bottom of the fourth, Soto drew a leadoff four-pitch walk, but he made the third out in getting caught in a rundown between third base and home plate off a one-out grounder by Luis Garcia that ultimately resulted in a double play, one of about 800 double plays by the Nats in this game. And 
one of about, it feels like, 8 million double plays by the Nats this season. Boy, do they hit into a lot of double plays. They lead the league, and it's not even close, the second-place team. Now, they also led the league last year. So it's not just this year, it's not just this approach this year, but they have hit into a lot. And it's all the big guys in the lineup. It's Soto, Bell, Cruz, and Franco. They're all in the top 10 in the majors and double plays grounded into. Not good. Not good at all. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast. Uh, hit up Tim Shover's NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast, and we leave you now with the latest look back on what was happening with the Nationals one year ago as we take you through the month that changed everything for the Nats, the month of July 2021. And on this installment of the podcast, we spotlight July 3rd, 2021, a 5-3 Nats loss to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park, part of, part of a four-game sweep for the Nats to the Dodgers last July 4th weekend. Two big things from this game. Number one, this was the Paolo Espino versus Clayton Kershaw game. We got so excited for our guy, the secret weapon, dueling with the great Kershaw in this game. And uh, well, things didn't go so great for our guy, Paolo. Three runs in four and a third innings. He got pulled from the game after a one-hour, 44-minute rain delay. Paolo, though, had been on fire prior to this game. Paolo mania was at its peak going into this game. And well, then this game happened. The other thing with this game, though, and this game in so many ways captured what was happening with the Nats. So the official attendance was 42,064. This game was the first sellout at Nationals Park since game five of the 2019 World Series, but the game ended up including this rain delay of an hour, 44 minutes, resulting in the post-game fireworks show being canceled, something that has become such a fan favorite thing. The fireworks at Nationals Park every July canceled last year because of a rain delay. It was that kind of a season. This was that kind of a month for the Nats. So we take you back one year ago at this time, July 3rd, 2021, and we thank you for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast. Runners lead first and second, two out. The kick in the 0-2. Swing and a line drive caught by the shortstop, Lux. And the game is over. And the Dodgers have taken three in a row here at Nationals Park. And we got to blame Fox for one more thing, and that is the lack of fireworks. And here's why. The Nationals traditionally start their July 3rd game at 6.05. And the reason they do that is because, first of all, there's a quick turnaround to the 11.05 game on Sunday, but also because D.C. has an ordinance that says you can't set off fireworks after a certain time. I think it's 11 p.m. And because they got burned many years ago by that, they decided let's move the game up to 6 to allow for time in case it's a long game, rain delay, whatever, and we can still set off fireworks. Well, what happened? Fox picked up this game, which bumps it to 7.15 with extra long commercials for the national broadcast. Now you add that and the rain delay. And they announced finally, after 11 p.m., the game's going on. They announced in the stadium that the fireworks show was off and the crowd. Uh, I was so impressed with how many people stayed. It was almost 11.30 when they announced it. How many folks stuck around? And I know, yes, we want to think they all stuck around for baseball, but no, a lot of them stuck around for fireworks. And when that announcement was made, there was a legitimate boo from a lot of people. And I don't blame them at all. They sat through a rain delay and all that to not get their fireworks. And if they want to blame someone, you can blame DC for the noise ordinance, 
but you can also blame Fox for picking up the game and bumping it to 7.15. A dud of a night, a dud of a series in so many ways so far. This has been like a Murphy's Law scenario of like one bad thing after another over these last few days. 